The following podcast contains explicit language, but still not one word. And to find out what that word is, I'm here today with, or actually I'm not really here today, I'm on the phone with uh, a friend of mine, a very longtime friend of mine, Kevin Gray. Um, he writes for PaceMagazine.com and the Dayton City newspaper regarding beer. He's a beer enthusiast. He's a beer aficionado. What other things can I say about beer that you are, Kevin? Um, I'm a beer geek. Yeah, a beer yes. geek. Yes. Okay. So, so he's also co-chair for two festivals, and I'll let him explain what those two festivals are. So I do two festivals. One, the Montessori School of Dayton's uh, annual brouhaha, which raises money for the school uh-huh. and is always and focuses on either uh, Ohio or Midwest craft beers. Um, it's a very small boutique event. And then uh, this year, I've joined the planning board for. Uh, Big Beer and Barley Wines, which raises money for the Resident Home Association, which helps to place and and assist developmentally disabled adults within the community. That's uh, a much larger event with a lot of rare beers and you know hard to find and big beers, and that's uh, October third of this year. Okay, so now we both have a beer with us that we're going to drink. I'm I'm sitting here in Germany. You're sitting in Ohio. Uh, we both have different types of beer. Um, I'll let you tell me about your – actually, you know what? I'm going to tell you about my beer because my beer is probably lamer than your beer. Um, <laughs> but but none, nonetheless, it's going to sound impressive to, you know, Americans. Um, I have an, um, a Zwickel Keller beer. Do you know what a Keller beer is? I do. That's a type of lager, right? It is a type of lager and it's, it's been made, I think, with like an open hole at the top as it as – it, uh, what's the right word here? Help me out. Help me out, beer guy. What is the – Ferments. Fer- ferments, I guess, yeah. And so it has a little bit less carbonation than other other beers do. And and Zwickel is, I think, from Zwickelhahn. I think the, the, the brewmaster in, in the Middle Ages would tap the beer one time for himself and take the first swig before anybody else was allowed to have it. And so they called it the Zwickel beer. There you oh. go. Excellent. So here I'm going to I'm going to I'm going to this one is from the um Bayreuther Brauerei. That's the 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 brewery in Bayreuth there where the where the Wagner festival is. Um, but it's not that old. It's not like it's not I mean we got some seriously old breweries here in Germany. We have one I think that I think the Weinstefana is from like 1040 or something. It's a, mm-hmm. absurd, but this one's from like 200 years old. It's not that old. Okay, so here we go. <laughs> here we go. I'm going to open it. Okay. Oh yeah. Ooh, that sounded nice. Yeah. Okay, and I'm going to... Oh, hold on. That is radio. That is radio for you. Okay, <laughs> so, what, so what have you got? All right, so I have something from a brewery that's much newer. Uh, it's Brewery Vivant. It's Tart Side of the Moon, uh, and it <laughs> looks very much like the, the pun that it refers to. It's uh, got this cool uh, glass with some hops and some wheat and some water and some yeast, and it's got you know a prism of light coming out the one side. Um, it is a Belgian-inspired dark farmhouse ale. Um, so it's What the hell does farmhouse ale mean? Um, it means a wild style ale, like the lambics or saisons, uh-huh. uh, where they, you know, might have either yeast that gives it kind of a funky flavor, a kind of wet dog or a sour flavor, um, or more likely those are caused from. Uh, I love the taste of wet dog. God, yeah. uh, you know. Me too. Yeah. Uh, but more likely they're caused from bacterial uh, infections. I they love bacterial infections, infections too. Well, they would, they would be infections in other beers, but these are to style. It's a, it's a beautiful beer. Uh, big shout out to my cousin Nathan, who is a, a huge beer trader and a huge beer collector. And he just brought me uh, – he had actually bought this uh, four-pack months ago. 
and uh, I just saw him this weekend, so he gave it to me. So I um, tried one the other day. I love it. So I thought that'd be a fun one to, to have here. So I will open it up, and hopefully you can hear it. For our oh, by pleasure. the way, this is in a can. Which oh, I think but that's, a, that's awesome. Yeah. So you heard the can opening. And now I'm pouring it into my snifter glass. There we go. Okay. All right. So, 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 so cheers. Here you go. Cheers. Mmm. <laughs> oh, yeah. nice. Oh, that's milder than I thought it was going to be. I think, I think, hmm, but it's good. This is really, this is nice. It's, um, a lot of uh, like pit fruit flavor uh-huh. to it. Um, tell me, tell me about math mouth feel. Can you can you do that? I know yeah, you can. Yeah, it's uh, it's got a creamy mouth feel. Okay, this one does not. This has like a wet mouth feel. Is that, that a nice thing? Cho- yeah. um, <laughs> I suppose uh, <laughs> has a nice chocolatey flavor to it too. Hold on, I have to think. It only has a kind of metal ending to it, but not an unpleasant metal ending, like. I learned recently that that you call that um, oh, what is the term for that? Minerally, mineral. minerally. Uh, um, uh, well, mineral. Oh, okay. It's a a mineral flavor. Uh, I don't usually tend to like it, but um, mm. I guess it's a thing. This is if you could imagine kind of a a hint of dark chocolate and a hint of really rich like Michigan cherries, mm-hmm. and then a little sour over the top of it. It's quite nice. Oh my god! Wow, you win beard night today. <laughs> Jeez! Wow. Okay, we have to get down to business, and also I just have to get over my envy. So here we go. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so so I have given you a crossword puzzle that will mm-hmm. allow us to determine what word will not be heard in this episode. And uh, we've already established that there are some naughty words, but this word will not be heard. Are you, are you ready? I am. So you have the crossword in, in front of you, but you do not have the clues. So I do. It is just, uh, just a blank crossword puzzle. And I think you can attest that it is possibly the lame – it looks like a, a – stairs because because oh, it, looked, it looks sort of like uh like a double helix okay yeah okay single helix yes but 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 very little overlap right i mean it's yes. it's not a dense crossword that is uh, correct and that's it's not our purposes today we, we okay so here we go so um i'm gonna start with number six and go back up to number one there are only seven clues but um <laughs> there is only one time when there's an across and a down that have the same number okay so here we go so i'm gonna start with number six that's a cross can you see okay. it? Yep. Okay, good. So it says, this is the bare infinitive form of a verb for a hobby with many enthusiasts. It involves using firearms or very sharp projectiles to kill animals, either for sport, food, or to use their furs to gird oneself from the bitter cold of deepest winter. Hmm. Would this be hunt? Yes. All right. That is the correct word. Okay, nice good. Done. Okay, all right. So n- number five. Number five, are ready? Yep. Uh, this is five down, right? There's only five down. That is correct. Okay. So the smallest, weakest offspring in an animal's litter. Oh, that would be runt. That is, that is, that is correct. I'm sensing a pattern here. I, I have no idea what you're talking about. So number four, <laughs> number four across is, as per Wikipedia, in American and Canadian versions of football teams, of football rather, teams who do not want to risk a turnover on downs by not gaining enough yardage to make the first down and are in such a field position that they do not believe they can successfully make a field goal will have to punt. That is correct. You are three for three. All right. So here we go. <clears throat> I believe the next one is number three, right? 
All right. So yes, and uh, we have an across and a down. Here. Okay, so I'll I'll go with three down. Ready? Okay. Okay. Yes. If if Colt Seavers, the main character of ABC's seminal television program of the 1980s, played by Lee Majors, uh, uh, the Fall Guy, is doing his job, but he is not presently tracking down someone who has skipped out on bail, then he's probably performing a. Oh, a stunt. That is correct. That is that is absolutely right. Very good. Yes. Mm. All right, so uh, let's do the, the other three. This one's a little, right. little bit harder. And again, I'm using Wikipedia as a definition because honestly, I can't be bothered to come up with them myself. And whose fault is it that they're public domain? So anyhow, in medicine, this is a hole or a small passage which moves or allows movement of fluid from one part of the body to another. Uh, that would be a shunt. That is correct. That is absolutely right. Okay, and number... Two. This is two down. Yep. Again, lifted from Wikipedia, but this time regarding a clearly more important and let's face it, better sport than football. In baseball, this is a special type of offensive technique in which the batter loosely holds the bat in front of the plate and intentionally taps the ball into play. Hmm. Could this be a bunt? No. Yes. Yes. For a moment, I. I yes. That is absolutely right. <laughs> okay. So fi- finally, number one. This is the word which absolutely will not be used in this episode. And again, this is partly lifted from Wikipedia, their fault. And it is the name of a short-legged, muscular, quadrupedal marsupial native to Australia, but not the koala. In their native land, they are seen by many as being fat and slow and lazy animals and are often mocked. However, some consider them adorable. Wow, Aaron, I had no idea what this one is. Okay, okay. So, so it has two syllables, and another animal is the last syllable. A nocturnal animal that lives in caves and hangs upside down. So it would be a, oh, a wombat. That is correct. Yes, that word will not be used in this episode at all. Okay. Done. <laughs> Let's drink to that. Cheers. Cheers. Gowan. This is A Million Little Gods, and today we're finally bringing you the second full episode of our show. We had a bit of a break in the summer to reorganize, but we're back now. Today we have a show that we've been working on for months, and in my case, even years. We're going to examine the question of whether science... Science! Whether science... Whether science Science Dude, seriously, are we going to do this? Science 
I didn't even say science. Whether science as an institution and a practice is as value-laden and rhetorically charged as any other human endeavor. Thanks for finally letting me finish. Why, why, do, you, why, why, do, you, why do you keep doing that? No, no, yeah, you're not here to stump me, but right. if I don't know the answer, I'm going to tell you. The, I don't right. know the answer. Okay. Exactly. Uh, the gravitational waves are ripples within the pre-existing fabric of space and time. Nova. Each week, a science adventure. From this distant vantage point, the Earth might not seem of any particular interest. But for us, it's different. Consider again that dot. That's here. That's home. That's us. Probably is a way of marginalizing it to say you're just religious or you just have faith in science or that's just your belief. Are all the questions of life related in some way to science, or does philosophy kick in at some point? Is everything about science? I think that all the questions are ultimately about science, but in practice, you're wasting your time if you try to explain certain things in a scientific way. If you try to explain the emotion that we feel on listening to a great piece of music, uh, ultimately that must be done in a scientific way, but in practice it may never be, uh, because it's just too complicated, it's just too far removed from the, the domain at which science can in practice operate. Last night I remembered the line from the Hindu scripture, the Bhagavad Gita, Vishnu is trying to persuade the prince that very small stage in a vast cosmic arena. Think of the rivers of blood spilled by all those generals and emperors so that in glory and triumph they could become the momentary masters of a fraction of a dot. So my birthday was earlier this month. I turned 38. That means I'm four-fifths of the way to my fifth decade. Just three years ago, I switched from being closer to 20 to being closer to 50. And if you catch me at the right moment, amongst the right crowd, possibly having poted the right potable, like a wassail. I like wassails. I like saying wassail.
Anyhow, given those conditions, you might catch me feigning being worked up about how old I am. But the thing is, none of those numbers really signifies anything ontologically solid. My age isn't a thing. Birthdays aren't things. Days are only things if you define them as a discrete period of daylight. Inasmuch as they are 24-hour blocks, they're simply a random point chosen so we can mark the passage of time. Actually, they're less than that. They mark our perception of the passage of time. And years are the same, right? They're just units we've imposed on a continuum. But then again, some of those arbitrary units get associated with auspicious events, and then so we endow them with significance. So like, so like 1492 or 1776 or 1918 or 1945. I'm going to make the case for a year that I think deserves to be in that list, at least for Americans, but not for any one pivotal event, but rather because it was a tipping point. And that year was 2005. Now, I know, I know what you're thinking. If you had to pick one year in the 2000s as epical, obviously you can make a strong case for 2001 or 2008. Each of them contained crucial events in history. 2005 wasn't like that. I can't really point to too many events in that year that would distinguish it, although the debacle of Hurricane Katrina comes to mind. It's simply the case that 2005 falls right in the money spot of a span of years, including the ones we're still living in, when the spirit of the age had or, or has undeniably entered the broadest cultural consciousness. What I'm, what I'm trying to suggest is that no later than 2005, if you said to someone, man, there is some crazy ass shit going on up in here, they're not looking askance at you. They know just what you're talking about. It was a, a cultural tsunami that finally hit land in 2005, and combining to form the tsunami, some major cultural currents have been surging to the shore for quite a while. There was a malaise that came with our timorous retreat into public security after the events of 2001. There was distrust at the face of undeniable chicanery at the highest levels of government, which had led us into two immoral wars and abandoned the poor and largely African-American people of New Orleans to die in squalor. There was the relentless encroachment of technology into every part of our lives. Newspapers and network television sources were being regularly outstripped by new media sources like cable news networks and news websites, which people in Washington had come to prefer, or talk radio broadcasters, which still had astonishingly large mainstream audiences. Social media was just breaking ground. Everything, including suitors to the position of authority as sources of public record, were being split into niches as diverse as all the varieties of frickin' M&Ms. David Foster Wallace had a term for this state of affairs. He called it total noise. He said that in his capacity as guest editor, he was obliged to engage in rampant deciderization. The sheer volume of good to transcendently good writing on endless and hopelessly diverse topics was just overwhelming. He said that it forced a rate of consumption which, in his words, tends to level everything out into an undifferentiated mass of high-quality description and trenchant reflection that becomes both numbing and euphoric, a kind of total noise that's also the sound of our U.S. culture right now, a culture and volume of info and spin and rhetoric and context that he said he knew he was not alone in finding too much to even absorb, much less try to make sense of or organize into any kind of triage of saliency or value. Now, I like the term total noise, and far be it from me to critique his word coinery, not my dearest DFW, but I've got my own term for these trenches we've dug, for this noisy, buzzing, rhetorical Western front we've created. I've christened it the Phantasmagorical Wall. One particular flashpoint along the Phantasmagorical Wall definitely crescendoed in 2005, at least in its present-day iteration, though really the first shots were fired at least as far back as pre-Socratic Greece and God knows, probably earlier. That is namely the notion of scientism, or the belief that science, and in particular, and finally, the natural sciences, is the only way we can get real knowledge. 
In the introduction to his 2011 book, Monopolizing Knowledge, Ian Hutchinson writes that science is the most remarkable and powerful cultural artifact humankind has ever created. What is more, most people in our society regard science as providing us with knowledge about the natural world that has an unsurpassed claim to reality and truth. That is one reason I'm proud to be a physicist, a part of the scientific enterprise. But increasingly, I'm dismayed that science is being twisted into something other than what it truly is. It is portrayed as identical to a philosophical doctrine that I call scientism. Scientism says, or at least implicitly assumes, that rational knowledge is scientific, and that everything else that claims that status of knowledge is just superstition, irrationality, emotions, or nonsense. is that unpicking dodgy claims, unpicking the evidence behind dodgy claims, isn't uh, a kind of nasty, carping activity. That's Ben Goldacre, author of Bad Science, a weekly column in The Guardian devoted to criticizing scientific inaccuracies in the media, as well as quelling health scares and satirizing junk science, giving a TED Talk in 2011. It's socially useful, but it's also a kind of uh, an, an extremely valuable uh, explanatory tool, because real science is all about critically appraising the evidence for somebody else's position. That's what happens in academic journals. That's what happens uh, at academic conferences. The Q&A session after a postdoc presents data is often a, a bloodbath, and nobody minds that. We act actively welcome it. It's like a kind of consenting intellectual S&M activity. So we'll start with the absolute weakest form of evidence known to man, and that is authority. In science, we don't care how many letters you have after your name. In science, we want to know what your reasons are for believing something. How do you know that something is good for us or bad for us? Directly on my birthday back in 2005, Goldacre wrote a screed against what he saw as the travesty passing itself off as science communication in the media. It was his hypothesis that in their choice of stories and the way they cover them, the media create a parody of science for their own means. They then attack this parody as if they were critiquing science. He notes that the science news stories the media choose to cover are frequently substandard. That is, the science being done is slapdash, brazenly dismissive of the scientific community's consensuses, and hardly worthy of being broadcast to the general public. Another problem is, when they do deal with valid science, the media tend to poorly cover these stories. In their perfectly reasonable assumption that their audience will balk at too much empirical data and dry prose, the media allied the theses and methods used to verify them. Even worse, on the not-too-rare occasion when a conclusion gets shot down by further research, that contradiction with prior news stories isn't noted until the commentator uses it to illustrate the unreliability of science. And then he condemns science as if no research had ever led to any useful knowledge. He says, These stories sell the idea that science, and indeed the whole empirical worldview, is only about tenuous, new, hotly contested data. So Goldacre's arguments are mostly valid, and far be it for me to renounce them, but honestly, some of his stances are irksome. First of all, I, I take umbrage with his censure of quote-unquote humanities graduates. For example, did you know that in his words, science isn't about something being true or not true? According to him, that's a humanities graduate parody. He contends, as I interpret the implication, that the truth, capital T, is an irrelevant, illusory notion, totally unrelated to, in his words, the error bar statistical significance. But what really ruffles his feathers is how humanities graduates go about their dastardly business. 
Every paper covers wacky science stories, he says, and before anyone bleats excuses on their behalf, these stories are invariably followed to universal jubilation with comment pieces by humanities graduates on how bonkers and irrelevant scientists are. And then there's this little nugget. Last month, he says, there was an interesting essay about how most brand new research findings will turn out to be false. It predictably generated a small flurry of ecstatic pieces from humanities graduates in the media along the lines of science's made-up, self-aggrandizing, hegemony-maintaining, transient fad nonsense. He sees an irony in such people having the nerve to critique real science. And to me, this sounds like an old undergraduate vendetta. What, did he and his harmless, upstanding, magnolent first BM mates suffer atomic wedgies at the hand of English majoring miscreants? Second, he fails to find complicity in the legitimate scientists who open their doors to the media. Scientists, he says, know how to read a paper. That's what they do for a living. Read papers. Pick them apart. Pull out what's good or bad. Hmm. So much for that whole scientists don't appeal to authority line. Assuming he counts himself among their ranks. Mr. Goldacre saw as a straw man assault on science, and his just a touch too insular defense of it, were by far not the only place that science and scientism had percolated into public discourse by 2005. Try Google trend searching any combination of words like religion, atheism, Darwin, Darwinism, Daniel Dennett, Sam Harris, Stephen Pinker, God, illusion, skepticism, science, evolution, scientism, scientific. They were all searched for before and after 2005, but it's easy to see an aggregate peaking amongst them that year. Though the phrase new atheism seems to have been coined in 2006, the trend that it identified reached cultural ascendancy in or around 2005. Much of what's been made of that movement, as the name new atheism suggests, has to do with what it opposes. But just as central to the thinking of people like Dawkins, Dennett, Hawkins, or Steven Pinker is what they propose. The belief that, however you might understand what scientific means, ultimately all truths are scientific. So the circumstances are fraught. What has been claimed in science's favor is, is fraught. Criticism of those claims is fraught. What are we supposed to make of all that? Here are the set of interrelated questions I think we want to ask. One, is there some mode of human thought, either innate or cultural, that reasons soundly from true premises? Two, if there is such a mode, does it enjoy primacy above other such modes of thought? For example, aesthetic, normative, spiritual, or humorous thought. Three, is that mode of thought what we mean by the word science? Four, what qualities constitute that mode of thought, and what qualities preclude thinking from being of that sort? Five, do values have a place in that mode of thought? And six, do rhetoric and debate have a place in that mode of thought, or is rhetoric its opposite? Okay, so, so, so you put this several ways. I mean, I certainly don't think science is just like politics. <laughs> no, that's um, absurd, of course. Um, but um, John Dupre, professor of philosophy at the University of Exeter and director of the ESRC Center for Genomics and Society. Debate. At any particular point, the interesting parts of science are controversial, and there's certainly a role for people to defend 
positions as well as they can and as long as they can, given, of course, that's not infinite and things become indefensible. I mean, certainly an area like evolutionary theory, which is a very difficult bit of science, where there are some very basic disagreements about questions it's probably very beneficial to have people defending more traditional views, people challenging those with new different views. And and so I think debate plays an important part. This is this is, is actually an interesting area because this always gives great joy to creationists who, who say, you know, the scientists can't even agree on their story, to which, of course, one should say that's exactly the point where... Uh, We're um, open to trying to improve the story, understand things better. Plato wasn't so clear on that idea. For him, if there was an epistemic element to rhetoric, then it was limited. Epistemic, by the way, just means the quality of knowing stuff. In the Georges dialogue, he said dialectic, the inquiry into and resolution of either metaphysical contradictions or incoherencies in empirical observations was a true art, whereas rhetoric was just a knack and a dangerous one to boot for flattering an audience with what they want to hear. Keep that idea of flattery in mind for later. In the Phaedrus dialogue, Plato leaves some room for rhetoric as subservient to dialectic, as long as it's practiced by the right people, which this begs the question of who the right people are, of course, As long as it's practiced by only those people strictly to communicate what dialectic has determined as true, then it has a very limited place. Aristotle had a slightly different take. He thought of rhetoric as a structurally similar sister to dialectic, where dialectic was used to parse out the truths of theories. Rhetoric was more practical. It was used in court to decide legal matters or in deliberative bodies like senates and parliaments to decide the best course of action. A short, insufficient way of describing it would be to say that dialectic appeals to our intuitions about what is true and rhetoric appeals to our emotions about what is good or bad. So if Aristotle is most right about these things, and I, and I, and I sort of think that he is, then what should we take to be dialectic? Does it make use of our experiences and social norms and values and what we take as articles of faith? That sounds more like rhetoric. Let's try an answer. Yes, it involves all of those things. And then we do all that we can to subject those norms and values and articles of faith to empirical tests. But doing so is itself taken as more valuable than not. That, too, is a value. There's another kind of issue where I think that one shouldn't generalize too much about science, which is that when you get into the areas of science that are directly related to human concerns, there is a deeper kind of value-ladenness to the science. Because there are topics you just that are inherently value-laden, and this comes back again to language. We have words for things that we're interested in that are um, deeply value-laden. To take an extreme example... I have spent some of my time being very critical of evolutionary psychology, which is one kind of attempt to explain human behavior in terms of evolution. And people, you know, sometimes in in that field will, will talk about the evolution of, for example, rape. Now, um, to and and I've come across people saying. This, you know, what we want to do is get away from, you know, the the kind of emotionally laden normative issues and find the facts. Well, 
to find value neutral facts about rape seems to me a misconceived project and we're talking about it with the words we use are highly value laden there's no value neutral sense of rape and if there's a value neutral sense of the way you know flies have certain kinds of sexual relations uh, then it's not what we're talking about when we're interested in the human phenomenon. I think there, that, that actually in a great deal of economics, psychology, sociology, the, the topics we discuss, the language in which we have to formulate the results we want to offer people are just value-laden. And part of doing those sciences is to have normative discussions about what kind of language we should use what kind of values we can agree on, which obviously is always going to be at risk of being limited in trying to understand the phenomena because we don't know what the phenomena are in a value-neutral way. Um, so I think there are many different ways in which different kinds of values come into science. Well, there certainly is a, um, a problem uh, in science with um, getting full results that's Carl Zimmer, a New York Times science journalist whose column Matter appears weekly. He's also written several books on evolutionary science. I asked him about this matter of values in science first by asking him for his take on some of the concerns Ben Goldacre had raised. Um, so in um, drug testing, for example, you can have situations where people run a clinical trial, they don't get the result they like, and they just never get around to publishing it. And so then you can eventually end up with some drugs getting to the market based on incomplete evidence. You know, if you only are showing trials where the results look promising or pretty good, and you're not looking at the whole set of data where maybe it's not so good, um, then you might be ending up pushing through a drug to approval that maybe we shouldn't. And so, you know, in, in, in those cases, I think you can, you can see pretty easily sort of the interest there is in somebody not sharing results, you know, because they don't fit their, their ultimate goal. Mm. Uh, and that's a, that's a serious problem. And, and within you know, the medical research community, there's a huge amount of movement to try to uh, make the whole process of, of evaluating drugs and, and, you know, other kinds of medical experiments to be much more transparent. I think, though, that, you know, the, the problem goes beyond that to other places where I would say that, you know, it's not a question of somebody having financially driven motives or some sort of political agenda. So, for example, in the world of, of psychology, especially social psychology, there are a lot of problems with studies that make a big splash and are very influential and people kind of use them to draw lessons about human nature and so on. And then when people get around to trying to replicate them, they don't get the same results. And so there's been a lot of debate about why that happens. And, you know, in, in, in that case, what may be happening is that people are just looking for some kind of result. Any result will be great. You know, any time that they can hit that magic, you know, p-value, statistically significant value where, you know, it's less than 5% chance that uh, something is due by chance, then, um, then boom, then you've got a paper and publish it. Um, but, 
uh, in going for a result, psychologists can do all sorts of wrong things. They can make mistakes. They can, they can basically uh, end up getting a set of data that leads them to a conclusion that's not actually true. And so in those cases, I don't see there being some sort of political agenda uh, underlying that. It's more has to do with just sort of how science gets done. Now, you know, and that's also a social issue. You know, Are we saying so it's a kind I of question want- begging? Is that what we're defining it as? Is that as in like we ask the question and the question itself kind of leads to a certain type of answer that we jerry into the data or or rather that would you define that as not good science? And yeah, is there some? Is there are there better practices than that? Yes, there are better practices. So the the thing is that it's it's fine for people to do small studies to test out interesting new ideas, and if they get sort of a promising result, that's okay. And and then people should be trying to explore those with you know larger groups uh, and uh, looking deeper into it. Um, you know, you have to start somewhere in science. The problem is that we have a sort of scientific reward system in place where if you, let's say, are a social psychologist uh, postdoc and you are really scared that you're not going to get a job. The way you're going to get a job is to get a big paper in a journal like Science. And they are looking for novel results, um, mm. in part because they want to get the attention of people like me, journalists. Uh, and so uh, they go for those uh, novel results, and they will be sort of seeking out some sort of result rather than actually doing like rigorous hypothesis testing. And then a lot of these results just kind of fall apart later on. In some cases, we discover that there was some downright fraud involved, but sure. but that's not the big problem. The big problem is that there's this push for these studies that just end up not holding up. And so, you know, psychologists themselves as a community are saying, Hey, okay, there are some things that we can put into place, some some standard practices we can put into place to minimize this problem. So you don't sort of have an open-ended experiment. You say in advance what you're going to do. You say uh, in advance, like how many people you're going to look at and what you're going to do. You don't sort of change the experiment midstream. You know, sometimes what people will do is they will keep running a test until they get two different sets of results that are different enough from each other that, boom, they hit their magic statistical significance line, and then they stop. Mm. They're like, oh. I'm good. I, I got what I wanted. And then they walk away from it. So, you know, rather than just sort of changing the experiment as you go along, uh, psychologists are increasingly saying, like, we need to just set up these experiments in advance in a certain way. And if we don't get the result, too bad. And this is, you know, in, in neuroscience, uh, neuro, there are some neuroscientists saying that, um, you know, we they, they've gone through sort of a period of infancy, of adolescence, where they... They were able to use big fancy machines like fMRIs for the first time, and they were very expensive and very hard to run. And so they would publish studies based on, you know, a dozen people scanning their brain. And, and that could actually get published. Um, and, and now it's quite clear that you can get all sorts of spurious results just working on such a small group of people. So it what they got to do It was originally is- that famous result of just scanning a frozen dead fish from a market and actually getting results from it. You can get all kinds of results from MRIs that, that can be spurious. And if you you, you need a huge data set in order to, to get anything out of it. Yeah, 
It was a salmon, yeah. It was a salmon, and, yeah. And, yep, and 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 there's just a question of like how you how you design your experiment to be looking for signals, and you know if you if you're not careful, you could be seeing signals that are in fact noise. But you know the 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 fact is that the nice thing about science is it's not just people saying different things. I mean, the fact is that there are actually rigorous mathematical techniques that you can use to make sure that your salmon doesn't look like a brain you know uh-huh. you can actually you can deal with that and that's that's great all that means is that psychologists and neuroscientists and, and other scientists just need to learn better statistics and to do better statistics and it's hard sometimes because um, it's going to require a lot more work so instead of studying 10 people's brains you're going to have to study a thousand people's brains and that's really expensive and it takes a lot of labor uh, and so, like, one postdoc isn't going to get all the glory. You're going to have to have networks of scientists working together sh- and sharing the rewards. And, you know, our, our science institutions don't work that way very well right now. But the fact is that a lot of scientists are saying they have to if we're going to be doing better science. That music you hear is a cue that it's time for a word from our sponsor, which, funny thing, we don't have one. You may have noticed that we didn't make the set deadline for this episode, even though it was already later than we wanted. That has something to do with the fact that this podcast is made by three people working for no pay who all have other jobs. One of those guys has two thumbs, more than one other job, is a single parent, and does 95% of the production of this podcast. This guy. I just pointed my thumbs at myself. What we really need is lots of listeners. So if you enjoy absurdly long, non-sequitur intros with dudes drinking beer and doing crosswords followed by abstruse parsing of science, then subscribe to our show on iTunes, write us a review, and pass on the good word. That way we can get sponsors, have time to produce and keep our deadlines, and you can hear a shill for website building platforms and email marketing services and razor companies. I still want to visit that factory and ask whether they've installed software in their German engineer blades, which hides the fact that they actually cost 200% more than their sticker price. I don't know if I'm helping my cause by making that joke. We're back. So they're not exactly polarized in their views. In fact, there's a lot of common ground in their arguments. But I think we can say John Dupre is willing to take less orthodox stances, whereas Carl Zimmer prefers to be skeptical of unwanted claims. As they are both specialists in evolutionary biology, I asked them for their take on a topic which has caused some controversy in that field. Namely, epigenetics. This is the study of changes in the physiological or cellular traits in organisms that are caused by things influencing them in their environment. So normal genetic change functions through alterations to an organism's DNA, to its nucleotide sequence, which occurs in reproduction. Epigenetics, on the other hand, involves changes that occur on the genome that alter how genes express themselves without influencing the DNA itself. One example is the change to histones, little protein bodies that DNA wraps itself around. They help regulate how genes express themselves, like stopgap switches. And how these things work can be altered by our diet or the materials in our environment or the decay of aging. And in some rare occasions, it seems, these changes get passed along in reproduction. I pointed out that some scientists and journalists, acting as provocateurs, say that this is highly controversial and contradicts years of scientific orthodoxy. It contradicts the idea that mutation in the gene sequence is the only means of phenotypic change, and other scientists take umbrage with that assertion. I asked whether there was indeed some drive to maintain hegemony among biologists. The difference in Dupre and Zimmer's frames of mind is clear in their answers. 
have we had a bit of a re revolution in which we understand mutation and change a little bit more complexly than we did even 20 years ago? Um, I would say yes. I say certainly yes. Um, though again, I have to say I published a little um, piece that was um, on a sort of syndicated column on this. And a lot of the more orthodox evolutionists particularly um, get extremely upset by that. There is um, a problem in the history that, that when you mention epigenetics, for example, or a number of things that have come to, to the fore recently, people will always tend to say, well, people were talking about that in you know, 50 or 60 years ago. I think what, what is true is that we understand these things much better now, particularly epigenetics. I mean, epigenetics in one way goes back to um, uh, Conrad Waddington in the um, first half of the, the kind of mid-20th mid century. But we, we now have a much more detailed and refined understanding of this, and it certainly has had radical implications for how we think about um, uh, a whole lot of things. The so-called um, central dogma of molecular biology, you know, the, the idea that um, the causal influence of genes was always um, outwards, never backwards. So, so genes make RNA, DNA makes RNA, makes proteins. But now um, and, and epigenetics is, is um, the core of that. We now, um, or a core part of that, uh, we now see that genes are constantly affected by um, their environment. Their, you know, what they do depends on what um, RNAs, proteins, uh, other chemicals there are in the cell around them. So um, there are a lot of things, yes, that certainly make make um, traditional views of living systems look a bit simplistic now. This sort of stuff I don't agree with at all. Okay. Um, and, and I think that it's, I mean, just, you know, people saying like, oh, look at how this person's being attacked. That must be because they don't like him or they're defending wow. the party line <laughs> uh, is, is a, I, I, I just find it really simplistic. Um, and, you know, that, that kind of reasoning uh, to me seems to, it would mean that, you know, a geologist should be very uh, uh, inviting of, you know, someone who says that the earth is flat, you know, like why should, you know, well, that, why yeah, would, okay. <laughs> it, it, it would be, you know, if, if a geologist, if, so, if someone gets up and says the earth is flat and a geologist stands up and says, that's ridiculous. Is that geologist, you know, defending the party line? Is that geologist afraid of, of a diversity of opinions? No. I don't think so, and uh, but I don't know that that's not necessarily what I'm saying. So I think the, I've heard. And, so the, and see, the thing is, it's it's easy it's easy for people, I think, to to hide from uh, rigorous challenges with this kind of a, a defense of just saying I'm being persecuted because these people are tr taking the party line. This is what creationists say. Yeah, today. sure, of course. You now, so so it's not. I, I mean, it's not. I I do not see it as a valid way of talking about these issues. The fact is that there, you know, the more kind of extreme claims about epigenetics have been challenged by scientists who point to the evidence or lack thereof, and uh, and who actually point out really good things. And you know, what's interesting is that the really extreme claims about epigenetics are always made by people who conveniently ignore the weaknesses in the data who ignore other studies that don't support what they're claiming. I mean, it's, it's funny that, that, that people like to sort of point out sort of, you know, these kind of weaknesses in mainstream science, but they never seem to like 
want to point it out in in these other forms. I, I'm sort of struck what, by that. What and, other forms do we mean? So I was I was I was, I'm talking specifically now about epigenetics just okay. because you asked about. It. Yeah, so sure. I mean, actually, we we haven't really defined it, uh, which is actually a big problem with epigenetics. Not a problem, but it's a challenge okay. because. People have used the word historically for several different things, and sometimes all those things at once, and sometimes not. So it's kind of a mess. But one one aspect of epigenetics is just the fact that genes can be basically silenced or, or switched on in a kind of a permanent way so that when an embryo is developing, some cells will have some genes just switch off and when they divide, those new cells keep them switched off and they stay switched off for good. Mm. And that's really that's imp- incredibly important because you want your brain cells to stay brain cells and not suddenly become a pancreas. Like that, that's, that, there's a very good reason for that kind of epigenetic control. And it's quite uh, remarkable that over time, like some of the kind of molecular uh, structures that keep some genes off and some on will change. Some of them will just kind of fall off over time so that cells can start to take on different kinds of activities. And this could could have a connection with cancer or other diseases that people have over the course of their lifetime, epigenetic changes over the lifetime. Now, when people have kids... Uh, you know, in that new embryo, all the old epigenetic marks, as they're called, get stripped off, and then a fresh set are put back on, which is an amazing, incredibly complicated process that scientists can't really fully explain yet. It's it's incredible that that this can all happen and happens reliably every time a new animal is is conceived. But w- what's really interesting there is that sometimes it seems under certain situations. An epigenetic mark that changed in someone's lifetime will then be carried down to their offspring. And that's really cool. That's, and that is scientifically very important. However, it is very easy to draw all sorts of ridiculous, exaggerated claims based on the pretty limited set of experiments that people have done uh, looking into this. So you will see people saying like, oh, you know, your genes aren't your destiny. You can overcome everything with epigenetics. You can change the future by changing your epigenetic code or blah, blah, blah. Um, and, um, you know, the, the evidence just really isn't anywhere near strong enough to be making these, these incredible claims. I mean, we don't actually even know how long these epigenetic marks can actually, how many generations they, they last before they just kind of get lost in the storm of molecular changes. So... Uh, my point is that when when people when scientists are uh, criticizing um, extreme claims by other scientists about epigenetics, or more frequently they're they're complaining about terrible newspaper coverage of epigenetics, mm. that's that's my world. Uh, they're, they're, I think I don't think that they're just you know, clinging to some old dogma. I think what they're doing is they're saying, why is why are people being dazzled by what is really very uh, weak data? Uh, and I don't think it's a good idea for people to respond to that kind of rigorous criticism by saying, you know, I'm being oppressed. Oh.
Those are two very distinct perspectives, and I'll try to get them to respond to each other in the future. The syndicated column Dupre mentioned having written was from September 2012, given the headline, Evolutionary Theories Welcome Crisis. He didn't want to name one very prominent responder to that article, whom he almost certainly was referring to when he spoke of the more orthodox evolutionists. And it's worth saying, Carl Zimmer was almost certainly referring to as one of the scientists who challenged more extreme claims about epigenetics, or lack thereof, Jerry Coyne. Now, I'm more than happy to push back a little bit against Carl here, even though I think he's one of the most brilliant science communicators working today, or at any time. And Jerry Coyne is a great evolutionary biologist, but he's an incendiary writer. His response article, entitled, Another Philosopher Proclaims a Non-Existent Crisis in Evolutionary Biology, reprimands Dupre's article on much the same grounds as Carl Zimmer gives. To it, he says that Dupre attributes far too much significance to the role epigenetics, along with the absorption of chunks of alien DNA and symbiosis, which help to form eukaryotic cells, has played in heritable variation. Coyne writes that some kinds of epigenetic change that are produced by the environment and not by the genome itself, such as changes in weight or flower color, are not stable because the DNA reverts to earlier forms. Hence, such changes do not last more than a few generations, and so cannot be the basis of permanent evolutionary change. Now, I have a blog entry by City University of New York professor of philosophy Massimo Pigliucci to thank for pointing out that this simply isn't true. He cites three published studies that give positive data in favor of the idea that epigenetic changes have long-term evolutionary effects on the phenotype. And my own curse research found two subsequent studies that do much the same, the most recent having been published in January of this year. This might not be an overwhelming reproduction of results, but it's, it's seriously compelling. There may have been some spurious claims made about epigenetics by creationists and New Age thinkers, but I wouldn't lump John Dupre in with them. With all due respect to Carl and to Jerry Coyne, there's a lot more to the notion that we are undergoing a significant transformation in how we understand evolutionary change than they let on. And that was my point. As Dupre actually wrote presciently in his original article, radically rethinking evolutionary theory invariably attracts the attention of creationists who gleefully announce that if the advocates of Darwinism cannot agree, the concept must be in retreat. And evolutionists confronted with this response tend to circle the wagons and insist that everyone is in agreement. This circling of the wagon? I wouldn't label it demagoguery, but it certainly isn't the domain of the paragon scientists are held to be, including by Carl Zimmer. It's the domain of humans. Okay, so remember that series of six questions we were asking ourselves? We've tackled the last two questions about the roles of values and rhetoric and debate in science. So now let's try our hand at the first four questions about what science is, what sorts of things are scientific, what sorts of things aren't scientific, and what role science should play in our lives. Is there such a thing as a scientific method? Is that a thing that, that one could uh, define at all? Um, I suppose the short answer is no. <laughs> but, um, so, so one way I would make that sound a bit less blunt is to say, well, there are a lot of scientific virtues. And some of the things that are traditionally thought of as scientific method are very much part of what I would think of as scientific or as epistemic virtues. Could you, could you give us some of those epistemic virtues? Of course. 
So, so one of the things that's very important to science is answerability to empirical evidence, which I would certainly say is a, a scientific virtue. But not everything is very much centered on that in science. So a lot of science now is, is a kind of model building technology that is much more loosely connected to evidence in the end. But in the end, the, the value of it is going to depend on having some kind of relevance to things that happen in the world. So that would be a core scientific virtue. There are, more, there are a number of more contestable ones about um, things like simplicity that physicists get very keen on, probably less... Uh, the Occam's razor explanation, basically, that is... The, well, the, yeah, I mean, if you can have a simpler theory that that's more likely to be true than a more complex one. Mm. Not quite sure whether I believe that, but uh, yeah, there's no reason to believe that, is there? I mean, it's 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 well, simply an assumption in some way. There's no, and that's yes, yeah, I think you might almost think it's a kind of derivative, sort of marginally theological assumption. That, <laughs> uh, but, um, but for example, a lot of theoretical physicists, you know, the sort of the Platonists, they believe, and Einstein was one of them. They believe that. At the very core, nature is simple, that things are unified in some sort of way, and that the goal of theoretical physics is to understand how this unification operates. Marcelo Gleiser, professor of physics and astronomy at Dartmouth, and author of several books of popular science as well as a blog on science for NPR. So the notion that now we perceive four different forces of nature, for example, you know, gravity, electromagnetism, and two others that operate within the nuclear, uh, the nucleus of an atom, is just an illusion because we are wearing the wrong goggles when we look at nature. If you just had the right way of interpreting things, you would realize that these four forces are really manifestations of a single force, so the unified force, the unified field, right? And there has been a dream of science for pretty much as long as science existed. And um, I would say that culturally... This dream is derivative of 3,000 years of monotheistic thinking. You know, the notion that before science, you know, the world was related to the creation of some divine being, you know, mostly in the West in particular, a monotheistic being, right? The God, right? And, um, and this notion that everything comes from a single source, right? We talk about the universe, the you know, oneness, right? Uh, the university, right? Which all knowledges are in there, really is an expression of a cultural bias, which is that we believe, or we like to believe, or some people like to believe that there is such a thing. There is a unity at the bottom of it all. And so there is a very, very strong intellectual current in the sciences to trace things down to this unity of everything. And, of course, that, that sort of idea has a lot of appeal, right? It's beautiful, it's aesthetically pleasing, you know. It would mean that there is simplicity in spite of all the complexity of things. But I would say that even if this were to be true, even if there is such a thing as some unity be behind it all, we could never get to it. And the reason for that is that we humans are very limited in the way we look at things. Um, I think that there are scientific methods, but I don't, think, I don't think you can boil it all down to one thing. And I think that different sciences have different approaches. For example, in physics, there's definitely a scientific method 
that you can employ to understand what the universe is made of. And that uh, can involve lots of um, actual experiments um, where you, you come up with a hypothesis and then you smash a bunch of particles together and see what you get and see if that matches your hypothesis. And, you know, you might discover, yes, indeed, there is a Higgs boson and there is one. So, mm -hmm. but, you know, that sort of relies on uh, just being able to do something over and over and over and over again and basically have the same conditions play out every time. Whereas, you know, there are other scientists who would like to know, you know why uh, there aren't giant Tyrannosaurus rexes and other giant dinosaurs stomping around. Because something happened 66 million years ago, um, mm. and we're not going to be able to do it again. That doesn't mean that that can't be studied scientifically, but there are other sets of scientific methods that can be used to address that. Another thing that one might add to that is that method is very much tied up with, with practice, and practice is really very diverse in different areas. Uh, so if you think of the, the practice of, um, let's say, a, a physicist working with a big accelerator, and you compare that with what somebody does doing biological taxonomy in the Amazon jungle, going around collecting plants, uh, and you compare that again with what somebody does making models for population ecology, trying to predict the changes in numbers of organisms, they're just doing very different kinds of things. And and it's it's very hard to know when you actually get into the specificities of these kinds of practices what it would be to say that but they all they all have the scientific method in common but you you know your your aim isn't to have a model that gives you the precise truth um, because models are always simpler than reality essentially you can think of knowledge as as an island if you imagine that everything that we know about the world fits in an island right the island of knowledge um, of course, the size of this island changes in time. Sometimes it grows. It may even shrink when we have a theory that we thought was right and is actually wrong. So we have to correct and say, oops, we don't understand this, actually. Uh, but as a whole, the island grows. Now, as with every good island, this one is also surrounded by an ocean. And in this case, would be the ocean of the unknown, the ocean of things that we do not understand about the world. So clearly... Knowledge is surrounded by mystery, if we understand mystery by what we do not know of the world and of ourselves. Now, it turns out that as the island of knowledge grows, so do the shores of our ignorance. And the reason for that is that as the perimeter of this island is growing, what's happening is that we are learning more about the world and because we learn more about the world, we become better equipped to ask questions that we couldn't even contemplate before. Just think of what we knew of astronomy before and after the telescope, or what we knew of biology before and after the microscope. Right? So these tools, these scientific instruments, they amplified our perception of reality in enormous ways, and they're still doing that. And with them, we became able, we were able to ask questions that before we couldn't even imagine that we could ask. So the pursuit of knowledge in that sense really is an endless pursuit because the more we learn about the world, 
the more we learn to ask new things about the world, things that we couldn't have anticipated. And so that, the corollary of this argument, is that we are always going to be surrounded by mystery, by the very way in which we learn about nature. One opinion Marcelo Gleiser and John Dupre have in common is a strong critique of reductionism, that is, the possibility of reducing all of knowledge through an inferential chain to the principles of physics. As a consequence of that, some people thought that science really was all physics, um, and that when we had you know, higher level sciences, the, the, the task was to show how what we thought we knew about um, larger, complicated things was somehow a consequence of physics. So people tend to have a hierarchy view. So they say chemistry is you know, the kind of first level up from physics. And if we understand the physics well enough, we can explain laws of chemistry as somehow consequences of the laws of physics. And then we you know, ideally move up from there to biology as essentially uh, very complicated chemistry and the laws of biology, if there were laws of biology, would somehow be consequences of the laws of chemistry and then even up to sociology or perhaps going another path to population biology or evolution. Or so so, that, so that, that's the, the kind of classic conception of reductionism. And then, of course, people started to work out that you couldn't actually do this in practice conceivably. I mean, that you may be able to figure out the hydrogen atom from quantum mechanics, but the helium atom was much too complicated. So the notion that you were somehow going to get, you know, the behavior of a DNA molecule or something from physics is pure fantasy. And so it kind of um, degenerated into much looser conceptions. For some people, it's just a kind of um, a metaphysical view there is only physical stuff so then we have a philosophical problem of figuring out why we can't do science for complex things or what the relationship is between the physics that's actually going on and the science that we do to try and understand these complex things i asked marcelo gleiser whether it was the case that our inability to square the circle of perfect reductionism was due to our ignorance, or rather it was impossible, no matter how clever we might become? Yes, I will definitely vote for the latter. Okay. I think that um, it's not simply our incompetence or level of ignorance at this point that precludes us from using quantum mechanics to study you know, your behavior, right? Because in principle you could, right? I mean... After all, the brain is made of molecules and atoms, and atoms are described by quantum mechanics. So, hey, let's uh, try to apply quantum mechanics to study the brain as a whole. And I think that that misses the whole point, which is that you cannot bring physics that is effective at certain levels to apply at all levels. You know, that you really need to describe different systems with different laws. And you can think of it as sort of like layers of a cake. You know, they may 
stand on top of one another, but they're different. Mm. And you can't really um, go from the bottom layer and say, oh, if I have a piece of the bottom layer, I'll know how the top layer is going to taste. No, you won't, because it could be something completely different. You know, the, the cook would have a different recipe there. And, and I think very similar things happen with complex systems, you know, especially because um, the notion of predictability, right? Because what you are talking about when you talk about this reductionistic dream is that to say that at the very core, nature is basically like a predictive machine, you know, that you can, if you have the given set of laws and you know how to divide everything into little bits and describe how these little bits behave, you should be able to predict everything. That is, in a sense, what uh, Pierre-Simon de Laplace proposed in the early 19th century. You know, he called it the supermind. You know, he said that if there is a supermind that is capable of knowing the position and velocity of all particles in nature, including all the particles that make up us and everything else, that supermind would be able to predict precisely the behavior of everything so that there is no free will, right? Because everything would just be, you know, you crank the machine and you move forward in time and you know exactly what's going on, right? Now, that was sort of like the ultimate reductionistic dream, right? To have this sort of supermind. And in a sense, when you ask me that question, it sort of, goes back to that notion of the supermind, you know, could it be that we don't have the right minds, but in the future when we have the supermind, we'll be able to do it. And the point is that it is physically impossible to do that for the following, well, there are several reasons, but here's a killer one, which is that in order to, to use the laws of physics to predict the future behavior of a system, you need to know the position and the velocities of all its components at a given moment in time. Now, given that information travels at most at the speed of light, it is impossible for us to know precisely how the position of, say, an atom in my head is and a position of an atom at the ring of Saturn is at the very, very uh, same moment, because it takes minutes for information to travel from here to there. So it is operationally impossible to create a database that would have the positions and the velocities of all particles in nature at a given moment in time, because that violates relativity. So you just can't do it. It has to be said that all of this talk of the insufficiency of reductionism is counterintuitive. We've been reared, maybe unwittingly, on reductionism. Deep down, I'd wager we all believe that everything is reducible. And we've been reared at the same time to fear it. I don't think I have to explain what I mean by that. You'll know what I'm talking about. The fear of science is the fear of being trapped in a bleak, cold, meaningless system. I mean, if you really need proof, well... 
Okay, there's this. Water, fire, air, and dirt. Fucking magnets. How do they work? And I don't want to talk to a scientist. Y'all motherfuckers lying and getting me pissed. Yeah, that, that was that was that was the insane clown posse. I'm sorry I did that. But you but you see my point, right? There is in fact a well-seated and pervasive resistance to science. The phantasmagorical wall being what it is, we get bombarded with all kinds of data, and it causes all sorts of trouble. Distrust of consensus on climate change, the efficacy of vaccines, the safety of fluoride in the water, the safety of GMOs, even the efficacy of tighter gun regulations could be put into the mix. So what do we do about that? I was asked to give a speech at a PBS convention a couple of years ago about why science and environmental TV programming was failing in the United States, losing its audience. That's Catherine Carpenter. She's a documentary filmmaker who is executive director of the Evidence-Based Science Communication Initiative for the Cultural Cognition Project at Yale. I have been for a long time, so I did some research, and I came up with an article that Dan Kahan had written called The Failure of Science Communication. And it appeared in Nature magazine maybe three years ago. Mm-hmm. Very quiet little article. It didn't make a stir at all. But when I quoted from it to this convention, it was amazing. There was like a ripple of enthusiasm that went through the audience. And afterwards, a lot of people came up to me and asked me about this mysterious guru, Dan Kahan, and how could he know so much about how communications were starting to break down in our country and what that might mean, not only for television, but for you know policymaking and the future of democracy. Dan Kahan is professor of law and professor of psychology at Yale, who is very passionate about changing how we communicate science to the public. He's critical of the approach he labels the science comprehension question. He promotes using more of the statistical information we have about what influences people's behavior to affect public policy and the communication of science. Cultural cognition looks at how people of diverse cultural backgrounds see things differently, even when they're presented in the exact same light with the exact same words and pictures, and why there are certain topics that, when presented to a diverse cultural audience, cause polarization, cause immediate divisions among those listeners or watchers. And Dan, Dan believes that cultural differences need to be better understood. When we do polls in this country or focus groups or any kind of um, social science, we always divide ourselves into right and left. Uh, and it feels always very political, Republican and Democrat. But not, not every kind of cognition is happening along that spectrum. Some people are th- looking at what they see and hear in in ways that have to do with their group predispositions. So if I come from a group of people, we're, you know, mainly surfers and we live in beach communities and we share everything. We're very communitarian and we all drive Priuses and, you know, well, I'm going to look at a, at a piece of legislation or a piece of television very differently from the guys who live up the road and they're in a gated community driving Rolls Royces. One of the most controversial and outstanding results of the research done by the Cultural Cognition Group is that it seems that if you increase scientific literacy among people who are culturally disinclined to agree with scientific consensus, your inclination to agree actually goes down. We did a, um, let's see, it must have been last year, a study on science literacy and numeracy. 
And into this study, he embedded a way to research whether a group who were divided on climate change would become more or less divided as you added additional information into the mix. Mm. So in short, he was able to state with absolute certainty that climate change is one of those issues that if you are trying to build consensus about it, do not give them more scientific information. It only gets worse. And as you add in more scientific information, the groups that were spread along the spectrum just move to the extreme edges against each other. And climate change is one of the strongest. Well, the other one is evolution. Climate change is, is very, gets very polarized the more information you give them. If you're asking yourself what the neuropsychology behind the cultural cognition Kahana's studying is, there are some mechanisms he has identified in his publications. For example, the avoidance of cognitive dissonance, which he identifies as the inclination to resolve contested empirical claims in a manner compatible with one's cultural identity. There's also bias assimilation, naive realism, reactive devaluation, and group polarization. But so how does Kahan pinpoint these forms of motivated reasoning taking place? What are his methods? Cultural cognition is riveting, and it, it was, you know, as a, as a sector of social science, it really dates back 30 or 40 years. And the early cultural cognition scholars divided the world into four quadrants, hierarchists, communitarians, egalitarians, and individualists. And these groups, you know, you may think you know them by listening to their names, but actually they're pretty complicated and the definitions are very nuanced. And when Dan conducts a study, designs a new study that's going to use cultural cognition, he inserts a battery of questions at the beginning of that study design that will allow the, you know, the company that's taking the data to make sure they have enough people from all four quadrants represented. They converge, right? This is pollution. This is what they saw. Dan Kahan speaking at the Arthur M. Sackler Colloquium in 2012. You know, at the time, don't do this. Why did it happen? Because there was nobody to stop it from happening. We don't have any kind of provision for protecting the science communication environment. And you can't do it as an individual by yourself. What we need is for government to have a protective function. Here's a proposal, science communication, EPA. We have a government regulation. Why laugh? Every single regulation that gets proposed by an administrative agency in the United States gets evaluated by the Office of Management and Budget for cost-benefit analysis. Why shouldn't every policy that could have some kind of science communication impact be evaluated to understand so you don't do stupid things like was done with HPV, right? And maybe too so you can do smart things using the science we have to forecast when something might have happened that you wouldn't have anticipated, like nanotechnology, where now there's a normal distribution of views among cultural groups, unlike the, the pathological bipolar <laughs> distribution, bimodal distribution of climate change. But nobody knows about nanotechnology. What happens when they know about nanotechnology? Yeah. Did an experiment. They become polarized in the same way. Will there be this future for nanotechnology? Who knows? But we should try to figure out. I asked Katie whether there wasn't a decent argument to be made against the Cultural Cognition Project. There's some element of question-begging involved in saying, we know darn well that this is the best policy, 
But we know if we start telling people about it, they're going to be resistant. So here are some ways we can circumvent the resistance. Now, I, I think, for example, climate change is one of the greatest threats humanity has ever faced. So it's not hard to convince me that we need to get everyone on board with policies that confront the problem. But saying that we need an agency to monitor scientific developments and consider how best to manipulate people's cognition so that they react as policymakers wish, that's not necessarily a business I think government should be in. It's a little chilling, isn't it? I mean, I'm happy to be wrong on this, but it gives me pause. Well, Dan always reminds me that people, they don't have time or brain space to learn everything they need to know about science, let alone climate science. There's plenty that they don't know about science. They don't, just, people don't know what photosynthesis is. They don't know why you, you put, put up trees. So I, because people do not have time to learn all they need to do about, know about science, and because they're becoming even more digitally distracted in contemporary times, and they've got a whole lot of stuff in their brains that really there's not room for a lot of the good stuff. So they trust their neighbors or their colleagues or their members of their group to know these things, and then they'll follow their lead. So yes, you hope they'll educate themselves about climate science completely, but if they don't, and their, their default strategy is to go with what Joe down the street thinks, then you want Joe down the street to be open-minded. Mm. And we don't necessarily want people to change their minds in one direction or the other. We want the minds to be open so that the policy discussion can happen on a community level. And that is already happening. It's just that the people aren't showing up because they already think they know the answer and they're staying home and watching the Kardashians, you know? <laughs> so <they're laughs> this is what I try to do in this show. I try to find antithetical reasoning, contradictions, exceptions, and exceptions to those exceptions reservations and reservations about having those reservations so that by the end the only true rational thing to say is i'm not quite sure and then to cultivate an ease and peace with being of two minds i have to give credit to galen strawson who's going to be in our next episode for pointing out that john keats called this the negative capability that is in keats's words when a person is capable of being in uncertainties mysteries doubts without any irritable reaching after fact and reason I can't claim not to reach after fact and reason. But I think the negative capability is a winsome antidote to the phantasmagorical wall. So I'm not entirely convinced by Carl Zimmer that it's enough to say scientists are just above the fray when it comes to making overstatements. But virtues, you might even say scientific virtues, keep me from condemning them for strongly defending their perspectives. And I can't say that it's wrong for Katie Carpenter and Dan Cahan and the people at the Cultural Cognition Project for using cognitive and behavioral techniques to circumvent the deficits of pushing for science comprehension. But still, it bothers me to think that creating good civic life involves anything other than actively encouraging citizens to think about the abstract but very real risk of public health dangers like climate change. I'm not entirely sure what to latch onto as a belief. And that's okay. I'm capable of doing that. Anyhow, in some ways, I'm glad we were delayed in our release last week because it gives me a chance to point out that this happened. A new study from scientists at the Georgia Institute of Technology providing the strongest evidence yet that there is water on Mars. The study suggests there's actually flowing liquid water on the planet's surface when temperatures are warm enough. Carl Sagan once famously said that we are all made of star stuff. 
so if we take the most widely accepted theory, then sometime after the Big Bang, the universe was almost exclusively hydrogen, which clumped together to form stars, and then the gravitational pressure inside them forced the hydrogen atoms to fuse into helium atoms, which is the big explosive reaction that makes them light up. Eventually, some stars start burning helium after their hydrogen atoms run out, and then the helium atoms start fusing or breaking off to form other elements. And that's the star stuff we're made of. The thing is, though, that water found on Mars and 50% of me and you and in this beer I'm about to drink is by mass mostly hydrogen, formed not by stars but by the Big Bang. So I think it's best to say we're made of astronomical stuff. Cheers. A Million Little Gods is me, Aaron Gowan, along with Chris Lewis and Nick McDonald. Our theme song is by Nick and his band Recycled. You can find links and other information about the people and studies in this episode on our website, amillionlittlegods.com. And you can sign up for our newsletter. You can also follow us on Twitter. Our handle is at AMLG Podcast. And join us on our Facebook page, facebook.com slash amillionlittlegods. You can start up a conversation. I check it all the time. Most importantly, sign up for our podcast on iTunes. It'll help us get sponsors. And join us next month when we try to figure out what it means to be a self.